0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: Now you just sit there and you'll learn something. I knowed General George Armstrong Custer for what he was. And I also knowed the Indians for what they was. 111 years ago, when I was 10 years old, my family, in crossing the Great Plains, was wiped out by a band of wild Indians.
2: Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 15th, 2021. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's
3: not right-wing. It's Just Right.
2: Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. It's rather an obscure issue, not one that many Canadians are aware of, and not one that's easy to get your head around because it's really so insane and illogical and stupid that only sinister forces and intentions can possibly be behind it. When I first heard about UNDRIP, I wondered if it might be some kind of new nasal spray designed to hide pandemic symptoms from the COVID fascists. But no, that's not what it is. UNDRIP stands for the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And of course, it's no such thing as we'll learn right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at www.justwritemedia.org where you can access all of Just Write's social media links and our archived broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now in a few minutes we'll be hearing Robert Vaughn in conversation with a new guest to Just Write, Ron Valant, whose efforts to warn Canadians about yet another coming gross violation of their fundamental rights and freedoms, has brought him to our attention. It's called the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UNDRIP for short, and after hearing what it's all about, I'll tell you right up front that I see UNDRIP as just another variant of Canada's racist virus with which this country is deeply infected. UNDRIP falls under the umbrella of schemes like Agenda 21 and the Great Reset, in which we, you know, will own nothing and be happy. Or in other words, it's a complete communist and fascist assault on property rights. It, of course, concerns all aboriginal Canadians living on reservations, and it concerns everyone else in the country as well. Canada, sad to say, has a despicable history and reputation regarding its aboriginal peoples, and this has not so much to do with what you think you know. Still today, many reservations have no clean water, no adequate health care, violence exists on a scale unimaginable to most in the country, and the so-called First Nations have been infiltrated by United Nations interests and even elements of Mideast terrorist groups. We saw evidence of all this in Caledonia, Ontario, about nine years ago, when Just Right Media featured a number of YouTube presentations and interviews with the likes of Mark Vandermass and Gary McHale, who were directly involved with the Caledonia crisis, a situation where so-called First Nations people were threatening the lives and well-being of local residents, based on their claim that the residents were occupying traditional Aboriginal lands. Certainly a theme central To UNDRIP. So, before we begin with our discussion about UNDRIP, which takes the conflict to the next level, I wanted you to hear this chilling description about what was going on in Caledonia as described by Gary McHale himself in our own YouTube online video dated March 21st, 2012. When you describe what Caledonian residents were forced to endure there at the hands of violent Native protesters, and at the hands of police, I have to add, I suddenly saw a microcosm of the COVID lockdowns. And I realized that both were driven by the same forces. We saw the same patterns at play. And you know, instead of a vaccine passport... As is being proposed today, Caledonia residents actually were forced to display native-issued passports to leave their home or return to their home each day. Consider this a warning about what can happen as a consequence of UNDRIP. And when you hear about how police continue to assault and arrest only those who stand for individual rights and freedoms, it's just like what we've been seeing today in Canada from coast to coast over the COVID lockdowns. So the story you're about to hear from Gary McHale as told in 2012 is not so unlike the stories heard from today's freedom fighters on the front lines against insane COVID restrictions and masking enforcements.
4: Jesus said, why is it that you can look out and know the signs of a coming storm and yet you cannot look at the signs of the day that you live in? You don't have to be Einstein to look across Europe and see the times that are coming to Canada. You don't have to look to Dearborn, Michigan to realize that Sharia law is around the corner. You don't even have to be aware of the fact that McGuinty himself, in 2004, entertained the possibility of bringing Sharia law to Ontario. The greatest proof of the danger that we face in our society today and the fact that we will not stand if real law comes is what's happened in Caledonia. The City of London has just experienced a riot last week and people from all backgrounds were outraged by what happened but imagine the same situation not just for a few hours or a few days or for a few weeks but months Imagine the rioters being allowed to kidnap police officers and residents, destroy the power station, burn down bridges, dig up the highway for six weeks, and stop vehicles and search the cars and search you personally and your children, while police stood and walked week after week after week. Imagine if you were forced to show native issue passport to leave your home and to return to your home. Imagine if you complained, if you believed you have rights and that the police should take action and that these attitudes that you as a citizen of Canada should have freedoms suddenly get turned on you and that you are the one inciting the violence simply because you believe you have rights. Imagine if dozens of OPP officers were suddenly in the hospital and residents were repeatedly assaulted, harassed, intimidated, not for hours, but for weeks and for months. But it gets worse. Unlike here in London, where everyone almost immediately condemned the violence that occurred, in Caledonia six years later, police, government, most media, politicians still believe it was okay the native thugs were justified, that it was acceptable that if you were a victim, that you were victimized, you had no rights and that race controlled everything police officers did. I'm not exaggerating. I've had police officers under, on stand, under oath, testifying that they receive orders to identify the race of the person And if it's a native person, they're required to release them. If it's a resident or non-native, they are to arrest them. There's little difference between what's happened in Caledonia, and I would say one of the things that is so shameful is that not one church leader in six years has spoken out or taken a stand against the injustice. It's a truly a black eye upon the church in, in Caledonia who continue to refuse to demand of the government an end to racist policies in Caledonia. Let's understand something. The vast majority of native people in this country want to live in peace. They want to find real solutions to real problems. Most live in fear. Whatever level of violence I want to tell you what happens in Caledonia does not compare to what happens on many reserves. Never get published. Never get reported. Before I continue and talk about how we should take a stand, I want you to realize there is a price. If you speak up, you will be persecuted. When government policies have been institutionalized to the point where racism is the norm within the police, I assure you the full force of the state will come down upon you. I had OPP Commissioner Julian Fantino on the stand under oath for two and a half days. He had to answer my questions. He told me, or told the court, that the OPP installed a new accounting system because they wanted to track how much it cost to police Gary McHale. I didn't know I was such a serious villain that the OPP needed to track the costing of police services to me. What, was I a mobster? I've been arrested six times, prosecuted three times. Not one case met at the trial, the OPP have sued me for $7.1 million for public statements where I said they were disappointing their oath of office. I have received death threats, I have been beaten in the presence of OPP officers and taken to, to the hospital. I have been cursed and assaulted several times, labeled a racist, white supremacist by the natives, by the media, and by the OPP. Julian Fantino as the Commissioner of the OPP started a campaign to fame me on TV, radio, and newspaper. He ordered his officers to target me for arrest, ordered them to overlook legal nuances, told his officers to disregard the views of government lawyers, to disregard the courts, and told them to exploit every possible way to get Gary McHale. That's in his emails. When I was attacked and put in the jail, it was Commissioner Fantina, as the highest ranking police officer in this province who wrote a letter to the court supporting the native person who beat me up. He also emailed his own officers, because on that same day, that native person assaulted at least 10 officers. He was charged for those, that assault. Commissioner Fantino sent out an email ordering his officers not to charge him with assaulting police officers. The current commissioner has has faced criminal charges for obstructing justice when he was part of a series of emails where he told police officers to disregard the evidence and arrest Gary McHale anyways. Commissioner Fantino faced criminal charges when he threatened elected officials he, he told them he would punish them four different ways if they ever said anything positive about Gary McHale in public. I took that to court. Superior Court Judge Crane ordered Fantino to face criminal charges for
3: influencing municipal officials. I'm joined today by Ron Valant to express his concern, and it should be your concern as well, over what he describes and i and i have to concur is perhaps the most important story in canada not being told not being covered by the media and that is the story of the united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples and i'll stress that word peoples not people not individuals this is about peoples groups and undrip as it's called was adopted by the un general assembly back in 2007 after being Bounce back and forth for about 20 years. Uh, Canada endorsed it fully back in 2016. That's with the Liberal government, of course. And in December of this past year, 2020, there was a bill introduced, Bill C-15, which I would encourage our viewers and listeners to look up because this is going to affect everybody in this country, not the least of which would be the descendants of Aboriginals, the indigenous people, the First Nations, however you want to call them because a number of them actually disagree with what's going on with Bill C-15. Ron Valant, I think it's important that people know who you are in that you ran for the People's Party of Canada and it seems that people who are running for the PPC and people who support the PPC are basically the only ones out there doing anything of any value to our freedom and First of all, thank you for running for the People's Party. It's a party that this channel has endorsed back in the election of 2019. And I wonder if you couldn't then frame for us Undrip, or as it's sort of nicknamed in Canada, Can Drip, and why it's so important.
0: Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Appreciate your work during the election. And that was very good. Um, Yeah, you're right. I mean, the people who ran for the PPC, they're really the uh, awake, Canadians who see the dangers. And myself, for me to run was like nothing that I would ever want to do. But I felt uh, compelled to do it because I saw that Canada at that election, that was a tipping point for Canada. And the reason why it's a tipping point, it all has to do with UN Agenda 2030 that no one really seems to know about. And uh, it was Stephen Harper and the Conservatives who signed on to it uh, September 27, 2015. Trudeau was just simply implementing it. So People wanted to go for the Conservatives at that time to get rid of Trudeau, but they don't realize that they're two sides of the same coin. They're both basically controlled parties in a sense, you know, like there's hidden hands, it seems like, behind the scenes that guides them towards the, the UN agendas.
3: Yes, as a matter <laughs> okay. of fact, Ron, if I could just briefly interrupt you, I noticed that yeah, in 2016 for- when the Liberal government endorsed UNDRIP in, uh, in, in to the fullest extent that it could, The Conservatives also agreed, in principle, to the objectives of that document. So yes, two sides of the same coin, the only place people can go to for any sort of opposition is the People's Party.
0: That's right. I did see some of the Conservative MPs vote against the bill of his 262 back then that was introduced in 2018 by Romeo Saganash, he was a two-time NDP Aboriginal lawyer. It is a PPC that is really the ones uh, that are uh, opposing this. And Maxine Bernier, actually, he was with the Conservative Party when they voted in UN Agenda 2030. And in one of his shows, my question was proposed to him, why is it that they voted for it? And he explained it. And he says, really, the way these, these things go is that you have uh, Stephen Harper, and it was a foreign minister at the time. They're going over that file, like everyone has their work to do with files, they look at it, and then they bring it towards the, the caucus or the group, and uh, they say, well, this is really great stuff. You know, if you read UN Agenda 2030, it's lollipops and rainbows, it sounds like, but if you go deep into it, it's a communist manifesto, actually. And so it gets sold to the people, and they don't know too much about it, and they go, okay, we trust them, we'll vote for it, right? That's how it works. Now that Maxine has been educated as to really what's going on, you know, uh, you'll see that he wants to get out of any UN agreement that doesn't have Canada's best interests. Yeah. When I ran in 2019, I ran in uh, northern BC, so Prince George, Peace River, northern Rockies. And there I found out right away about caribou recovery and UNDRIP. And, and no one was talking about UNDRIP, but up in northern BC, the aboriginal issues has been going on for a long time. Like they're leading the nation, right? And what's going on? And so uh, a fellow gave me actually a copy of UNDRIP. And it's really not that big of a book. Like you said, if people go and look up Bill C-15, Bill C-15 is only a couple pages. And if you go and look at that, uh, below it is the 46 articles of UNDRIP. Now, when I read that document for the first time, the thing that stuck out to me was Article 26. There's 46 articles. And Article 26 says that the indigenous have the rights to all of the lands, territories, and resources to which they have traditionally owned, occupied, or otherwise used. It is so open-ended that It's just amazing. So what happened actually after the federal election, three days later, John Horgan and the NDP government over there in BC, and most BC uh, residents don't know this, they adopted UNTRIP. And now 95%, I'm told, of, uh, of BC has been claimed by the Indian bands there. People are going to be shocked that large chunks of the province are already given over. So BC is kind of like the real canary in the coal mine. But Canada is the canary in the coal man for the whole world. Because what the bill is, they want to have Canadian law in adherence to the 46 articles of UNDRIP. In the throne speech was one line, and it says basically that uh, they will introduce a, a new bill for UNDRIP. And then I made an emergency broadcast video at that time at the end of 2020, it got good traction because I made several videos before that about UNDRIP, but it didn't get a lot of traction. This one got over 40,000 views. And so people started reaching out to me on that. That was introduced and they wanted to have it, you know, the final vote in the House of Commons roughly around June, July. We started poking our noses around there and we talked to a Liberal MP. And three days later after that, they fast tracked everything now and they want to have the uh, standing committee finish up the report or whatever by April 22nd. So what has happened now is there's been uh, two readings in the house and when they do a reading, they vote on it and they both passed. Then after that, it goes to a standing committee and then they come back with their amendments or reports or whatever. And and then they go ahead and vote on it. And so I've uh, introduced a letter that I've sent to my MP and it's also being sent to other MPs as well by other people. I sent it over to the committee just on Friday. Uh, I know of another uh, group that did the same, and also even the Justice Center in Alberta here with John Carpe. They went ahead and they sent one in too. And so this goes to the committee meeting and then they look at it and weigh in. But really, listening to the first committee meeting, except for maybe a couple, uh, most of them are all in favor of UNDRIP. For context, in 2018, Romeo Saginaw, she introduced a bill called 262, and it had passed the House of Commons, and uh, it was the senators who had blocked it. Many senators voted against it, and some were filibustering or whatever, like dragging their feet on it. And they actually saved Canada in 2019. No one knows about it. And then the election was called, and because the bill wasn't completed, then uh, it got killed. That's why we have Bill c 50 we're in the same place again as 2019 how. Huh? <laughs>
3: right. Um, I did not know that, and that is good to know. I, I know about the private member's bill, 262, but how it ended up being defeated yeah. by the Senate was something I didn't know.
0: Now, this is interesting for people who want to vote for the Conservatives. I ran against Bob Zimmer. He's very well liked in his riding and did very well. But we had eight debates, and I would bring up UN Agenda 2030 and UNDRIP. And he didn't want to talk about those. He only brought it up on the second last meeting where he said, yeah, UNDRIP has been in the play for a long time. And it's basically been passed through the House of Commons. He didn't warn anyone about any of the articles. You know, it's left up to us uh, with the PPC or just individual citizens to raise our warning.
3: I just wanted to express to people the importance of all of this, because we've been talking about the details. You've already brought up Article 26 and Article 26 plus the other articles in that document, when and if implemented in this country could have such a drastic effect on people's private property. For example, right now you see people in government, speakers at universities, speakers in concert halls, preambling their speech with things like, I want to recognize the fact that we are on an indigenous land. Yes. And when they say that, once this is implemented, that could be used in a court of law perhaps i'm just guessing here as 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 evidence that look people all around universities governments institutions are recognizing our right over everything
0: absolutely like when bonnie Handry in bc in one of her meetings you know she's the head uh, medical officer there bringing down all the draconian measures. Before her meeting, they say that we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territory, and they list the different bands. And um, I talked to a wealthy business owner in northern B.C., and he said that's been going on in northern B.C. for four years. That's the first I ever heard of it.
3: Yeah, and then and says, when, well, people, when people cede their property to the indigenous groups, and of course, again, to reiterate, all of the indigenous groups are in fighting as to who actually has control and can sign these documents, these treaties... But when they do that, people don't realize that from now on, there can be no development, no anything done with property, with the land that they claim to own, without first consulting them. Meaning, of course, you probably have to pay them royalties.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly it. And uh, he was saying that we hate it, you know, like it's all being thrust upon them. It's all the way down to any school meetings or anything, you know. And I said, why don't you guys just organize? It's not a big city here or town. And why don't you just agree that when they go ahead and start their meeting like that, everyone just gets up and walks out. He says, if we did that, it'd be noted who uh, walked out and we would lose our contracts. That's how much power these Indian bands have up there. And really the bands are small, like they're 200 people. There's only maybe 10 people running a band. They got tremendous power. Like you wouldn't believe, right? And it's just going to get worse. Now, the whole thing here that people need to realize is in Bill C-15, they identify Indigenous people according to the charter, the 1982 charter that Trudeau brought in. It's 35-2. And in there, they say Aboriginal. It's using another word. Aboriginal is defined as being Indian, Inuit, and Métis people, which actually excludes many peoples in Canada. For one, that was one of the problems in that pre-committee that was brought up by someone who uh, wanted to have it broadened. But the whole point is that Canadian law is going to be based on the 46 articles of UNDRIP. Okay, that's the basis. Now, UNDRIP itself, you go through the document, there is no definition of what Indigenous is. And I went and I started researching, well, the UN must have their official definition, but they don't have one. They don't have a legal official definition of what Indigenous is. And UNDRIP is their declaration of of the rights of these Indigenous people. It's it's not like a legal binding thing at all. Imagine, we're going to base our Canadian law on UNDRIP. And there's no definition of who indigenous is.
3: Right, This now, is actually,
0: absolutely off the rails.
3: I looked up the, the definition, the dictionary definition is all you can go right. by, I right. guess, for indigenous peoples online. And when you do that, you'll find out that virtually every single nation on the planet has what they might call indigenous people. Now, I wonder if communist China is going to adhere to the UNDRIP principles when it comes to the um, Tibetan peoples or to the Uyghurs. Right. You know, who who are, which are indigenous to, you know, to that area or we're not just talking about Australian Aborigines or Canadian Indians or North American Indians or Inuit. We're talking about uh, so many different, like the the native, native people of uh, what used to be called Formosa, Taiwan today. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, are these communist countries like China, Russia going to give back? territory or consult with these 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 (laughs) self-appointed
5: groups when it comes to things no white people european diaspora are technically indigenous to most of north america Uh, i figured that i would explain this because most people either don't like or don't know anything about history now here's something to consider when we look at the tribes that came across the Bering Land Bridge, um, and and uh, ostensibly island hopping uh, from South uh, uh, Pacific Islands, uh, from parts of Southern Asia into South America, but we're going to focus on North America here, of course. I'm from the United States. Um, there's a difference between the U.S. or Mexico and Argentina or something. If you look at the Americas prior to colonial expansion in the 15th and 16th centuries particularly. A very large proportion of all of the land in the United States was either completely vacant or was only migrated through sporadically. If you look at the concept of indigenous in a general sense, by the time of European exploration into North America, there had been such heavily heavy cultural and linguistic and, and spiritual divergence Among the different tribal groups, they were distinct uh, cultural entities. They were somewhat genetically distinct from one another by that time due to divergence. Um, You'd seen the rise and fall of what you could call essentially empires. Because the Europeans arrived after the collapse of most of the empires in North America, um, at least until you get down into the Yucatan region, and then you have genocide by the Spaniards and stuff, because of that fact, virtually the entire continent was more or less empty. There was no specific delineation of this tribe's land, that tribe's land, in areas where the population density had already collapsed prior to Europeans arriving. They're now thinking, this is a new theory, that they may have contracted, for example, tuberculosis, uh, I believe it was, from seals, actually, uh, on the, in the northeastern uh, region of the, uh, the uh, uh, Americas before the Europeans ever came. Uh, I am of the belief that that's possible that had something to do with the vikings that came over of course they they too had settled in areas marginal areas uh, close to coast because they love to fish basically uh, that weren't really inhabited in some cases by any recognizable tribal civic entity the fact is that 99 percent of the entire land area of the continent was virtually vacant if it was occupied it was temporary it was migratory in nature or it wasn't occupied at all europeans were the first people for example post-mound builder, to bring considerable irrigation capabilities and the kind of technology needed to terraform things to the continent. Again, except for some of the empires of South and Central America, that was absent from the tribes that technically in many cases were still in the Stone Age. They had language and so forth, but they didn't have ironworking or anything. They simply didn't have the kind of technology, generally speaking, necessary to create Uh, a a more stable culture. In some cases, you don't even really have much in the way of agriculture. You have horticulturalism, you have nomadic lifestyles, you have basically hunter-gatherer cultures, in some cases, semi-nomadic or fully nomadic in many parts of North America. Those areas were never actually settled permanently by any culture. Those cultures also were never a homogenous indigenous entity. The, The idea of indigenous-ness in the sense of so-called Native Americans makes no sense because those tribes for thousands of years prior had butchered one another. The fact is that the most stable entities that existed were almost completely gone uh, and extinct by the time of the European explorers. They found these these big burial mounds, And here's an interesting feature of, of uh, North American history, by the way, that people should know. When the Europeans first started finding things like Serpent Mound and so forth, uh, left behind by, by uh, which uh, Mississippian culture, I believe it was, uh, these mound builders that created megaliths out of dirt and wood and so forth. They had pyramids, uh, some of them very large, And they did this, keep in mind, uh, over the course of vast periods of time, uh, with nothing more than probably buckets and and wooden shovels. So more power to them. You have to have a considerable amount of social organization to create any megalithic structure. When the Europeans came, they found that the, the, the tribes that they encountered didn't really create these things. And in some cases, there were spiritual tales about giants or gods or whatever creating... You know, all of these megaliths, which (laughs) didn't happen, it was humans. Uh, It wasn't aliens, no, humans are capable of it. But yeah, uh, the European explorers that came to the North American continent in the 15th and 16th centuries, technically in many cases, some or all of the land that they were actually exploring and settling and, and forming villages and towns and so forth, not just migrating around on, technically it had been empty before. In some cases for centuries, it was essentially unclaimed land. If you look at the technology that was available to the so-called native tribes in North America, most of them, they wouldn't be able to live, certainly for for long periods of time, in much of the land that they actually frequented. In some cases, because, again, the total population of these tribes tended to be relatively sparse uh, and, and migratory, there was no, no need to settle it, and in fact, a lot of it boils down to the fact that there was so much more land than was actually needed to supply the kind of tribes that existed with their way of life. And again, a lot of these tribes didn't really have a civic organization to claim land in the first place. They just happened to reside in a place. Now, technically, they'd be indigenous there, but saying, for example, the Abenaki are indigenous to northern New England, southern Quebec, parts of northern New York, and so forth, okay, that's, that's misleading because the the total number of people that was there didn 't really fully inhabit the land, much of it was simply migrated through, but they didn 't really live there. I submit that the Europeans that came to North America are technically the only indigenous people to about ninety percent of the entire land mass of the continent.
2: you're listening to just right broadcasting around the world and online
3: in my estimation, and i 'd like your opinion on this, Ron. This is, of course, the United Nations, once again, beating the West over the head with a hammer in in an attempt to destroy the West by taking away the West's property and giving it to people, or peoples, as they would like to be described, the vast majority of which are tribalistic, collectivist in nature, and more aligned with with the... philosophy of United Nations than, say, you or I might be.
0: Oh, for sure. That's the whole thing, right? I mean, you look at the United Nations itself, I mean, there's 150 nations there, like China and other dictatorships and everything else. They do not like our Western lifestyle and our freedoms and the way we run things, right? And so here we're going to have our Canadian laws based on a group that doesn't have our best interests at heart. And you nailed it. Basically, what this is, it's an attack upon our Western society. Because we are the ones that can stop UN Agenda 2030 with our freedoms that we have. UN Agenda 2030, the United Nations wants to have direct control over every single aspect of our lives. The World Economic Forum is working with them too, and they're saying you'll own nothing to be happy. And that's really where we're headed. So this UNDRIP issue is about taking the land that you have underneath your property, underneath your cities and everything else to another entity. Even as it is now, the Crown owns everything, but it's all going to be handed over to another group. At least now we have somewhat of a stable situation. But with no identification of who Indigenous is, uh, it's a real problem, right? So depending on how a lawyer would define this, it seems to me that uh, you could have Indigenous people coming from Africa or from, I don't know, Papua New Guinea or wherever into Canada, and uh, they might be able to claim... Indigenous status over here. I think that's where it's going. Because yeah. there's a reason why they want to flood Canada, right? With uh, Liberals, they uh, helped create and also signed on to the Global Compact on migration. Not immigration, migration. So anyone can come into Canada now and we have to take care of them, basically. And yeah. that's, you know, you've seen it uh, in, in news, right? The Rebel Media's covered it. We're, we're paying for their hotels and everything else like that. All this has to do with redistribution of wealth and UN Agenda 2030, because Article 10 in uh, Agenda 2030, they want to have the rich nations poorer, the poorer nations richer, rich people poorer, and the poor people richer. All on the level playing field, communism right in your face, right?
3: It uh, is blatant. And I think that there's one other thing that we have to acknowledge here is that even though we're developing our own can drip C-15 in it, they are very expressly saying that they wish to implement all the Articles of UNDRIP as accepted by the United Nations. So anything in here, totally acceptable to the Canadian government.
0: When you look at it, unless we can influence the MPs, it's going to go through the House of Commons. It'll be up to the senators to block it again. What I'm hoping for is that we can educate the MPs to educate them to know that they have to vote against this thing because this is going to absolutely decimate their lives as well and their families and their friends and everything. Once this gets adopted, who's going to want to invest in Canada? What corporation, you know? Maybe the ones that are in line with, you know, the UN takeover of everything. But other corporations are going to flee. We're going to be absolutely decimated financially. Now, what people have to realize is that this is a multi-pronged attack upon our nation. When you go and look at UN Agenda 2030, and even this UNDRIP thing, it's, it's the ultimate doublespeak, I guess you'd call it, you know? Like, you think it's one thing, but then it ends up being something else, like a big Frankenstein, because they have their terminology. What's going to happen is there's a Black's law dictionary, and I, I don't have the actual definition of Indigenous here, but basically it's of the land. And just think of the wording here. Indigenous peoples have the right to redress. By means that can include restitution when this is not possible, just and fair, equitable compensation for the lands, territories, and resources to which they have traditionally owned or otherwise occupied or used, which have been confiscated, taken, occupied, used, or damaged without their free, prior, and informed consent. Can you imagine? You know what I mean? Like, how far is this going to go? Article 30, look at this one. It says that military activity shall not take place in the lands or territories of Indigenous peoples unless justified by a relevant public interest or otherwise freely agreed with or requested by the Indigenous peoples concerned. So here you go. Now, B.C.'s 95% claim, from what I understand. You can't have military there unless they, they agree to it.
3: It's, it's so, pretty much a huge land grab.
0: Oh, it is. The whole issue is to be able to get us off the land. And, and now there's a thing by agenda 2030, all over the world, they want to have 30% of land basically kind of in parks and off human occupation. And that has to do with caribou recovery, actually. Uh, no one knows about caribou recovery hardly, unless you're in the, you know, these trades that are working up North. But what it was in BC is that for maybe a 1,000 or 2,000 caribou, they want to make off limits, a million to 3 million acres of land. But what happened was in April of 2019, in the small towns, northern towns of BC, they were being told about this caribou recovery thing. The whole point of caribou recovery, they say, is that it's the uh, the habitat has to be protected in order for the caribou to come back to the uh, basically ancestral harvesting numbers of the indigenous peoples back in the 1800s so they can hunt them.
3: <laughs> are they going to be hunting them with, with bows and arrows or are they going to be hunting them with... Oh, yeah, high-powered, high-powered rifles.
0: weapons with, uh, yeah, side-by-sides and stuff. That's the thing. And they don't even like to eat the caribou, people say. I mean, the caribou is not a great thing to eat. But that's the whole game plan. It's, it's a ruse to be able to do this massive land grab. And even back then, there were signs going up in the backcountry saying no access. Ultimately, what happened was 3 million acres uh, was set aside for this. To be off limits for any kind of resource development and everything else. So this is going to decimate or or hurt these small towns because what they want to do is they want to close up the small towns. They want to make it so that the people who are able to survive off the land and be very individualistic, that they will actually be herded into large uh, cities, you know, like in BC, Some of the people in these small towns, you know, in northern BC, they have to go all the way to Vancouver for certain uh, medical procedures because the finances are being starved in these small towns for medical care, right? So the older people end up having to leave. And so the small towns are having a hard time up there, right? In Alberta, it was happening too. And then I, I brought up this thing about caribou recovery to the PPC. I says, you know, this is a red alert thing. And they had me talk to another PPC candidate in Quebec who said, yeah, same thing in Quebec. And there's 9,000 jobs going to be lost up in northern Quebec on account of it. It's an, it's and they amazing. were shutting down the mills too, right? And yeah. now you see lumber prices have just skyrocketed. All of that's a part to make it so that it's going to be incredibly unaffordable to go ahead and build your own building now. Uh, This is going to stay, I think, you know, it's all part of the the plan. (laughs) Okay, Article 46, it says, Nothing in this declaration may be interpreted as implying for any state, people, group, or person any right to engage in any activity or to perform any act contrary to the Charter of the United Nations. And that's all because of Stephen Harper and the Conservatives adopting UN agenda 2030 and all of these different things have been done behind the scenes. I'm learning a way to to deal with all of this stuff. And a lot of people go and do protests and everything else like that. And they just kind of just blow it off what you have to do. And if you go and look at even UNDRIP itself, the Aboriginal people, they're right on this, like they're sending in letters and they're being witnesses and they're talking about all their stuff on these committee meetings. We need to set up a watchdog committee, basically. And whenever these things are coming up, that we can flag them and see what they are. And then we can start mounting a defense against them. For sure. We need to deal with it on a political level on that turf, not just, you know, protesting in the streets because they're just blowing it off. right?
3: That's the only thing that gets the politicians' attention is fear of no longer being a politician. So um, I'm glad that you're you running for the PPC in opposition to all of these people.
0: What, what people have to do is they have to get, you know, other people in there who aren't controlled. And the PPC isn't controlled at this point. It could be. I mean, everything gets co-opted generally. That's how they, that's how they bring everything down, as we see today. But as it sits, you know, if there is an election called, I mean, you have to vote for the PPC if you want to save your way of life. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to educate the MPs of what's going on. And so if people can go ahead and educate themselves a little bit, even spend five minutes, just go to ffcs.info and go and look at the letter, read the points there. You'll be able to have my perspective of how I understand it. And, you know, um, I'm not a lawyer, but man, it's pretty, pretty simple to see the implications if you just go ahead and look at it purpose of the act now this is basically the whole issue right here and the purpose of the act is to affirm the declaration as a universal international human rights instrument with application in Canada law so you notice how it just calls it a human's right instrument not an indigenous one and b is to provide a framework for the government of canada's implementation of the declaration which would be undrip right it's a very short thing it's it's so open ended and insane but uh here we are (laughs) well thank
3: you very (laughs) much no one knows about it and
0: i've tried and to get major media on this i'm telling you it's just so hard i I started screaming from the mountaintops in 2019 and i was bringing up this issue and it's such a huge issue that um you're talking about the whole transformation of our country and this is going to go worldwide right but anyhow so i did it and but most people it is so far out there so far off the side, they said, no, that's crazy stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we're coming up to the wire
3: as well with April 22nd, right? So what exactly. would you encourage people to do up to that
0: point? Number one, go to ffcs.info, look at the information, get educated a little bit. If you want to take the letter, go ahead and send it to your MP and, and say that you're not in favor of it and tell them to get educated as to what's really the issues are. Talk to your friends, you know, like, you know, get serious about it. Yeah. So we're raising the the alarm and uh, people need to start raising the alarm all over the place because uh, if this goes through and it goes through the Senate, then we're done. I mean, uh, it's a total UN takeover. UN agenda 2030, they want to have that in place, you know, and radical, radical, radical change is going to happen the next five years. Like you wouldn't even believe in order to achieve it. And, and, after 2019, when the election ended there, I was really depressed for three months. Like, I've never been depressed like that before, like sad, like deep in my soul. And <laughs> people were saying, what's wrong with Ron? You know, he's downcast, you know, but I just knew that the, the most insane, craziest things are going to happen to Canada now because our shields are down and we have no defense. You know, like there's no voice, there's no nothing. It's all of the parties, the Conservatives, Liberals, NDP, Greens on the block. They're all UN globalist parties. And and not only that, but then you have all these premiers, they're all UN globalists, down to the city level. Like you have uh, Edmonton and Calgary, Montreal and Ottawa now, they're all uh, UN strong cities. Can you believe it? (laughs) What does that mean,
3: right? Yeah, There's a lot going on, Ron, from all fronts. And this is just like I said at the beginning, just another hammer in the arsenal of the United Nations and the globalists to destroy us.
0: I'm hoping for the impossible, that we can get the MPs educated and that they will be doing the right thing and and be willing to be brave and stand up for what is right. Thank you for
3: bringing this to our attention.
5: Thank you very much, Ron. Okay. Well, thank you for your work. Thank you. It's true. The same is true around the world. Um, There are indigenous, for instance, in South America, uh, there are parts of of the western coast of south america that don't appear to have been inhabited by Bering tribes which would be considered by the way the same group mesoamericans or native americans uh, as like the cherokee or something it appears that there was island hopping that went on from the south pacific well totally different genetic lineage the only people who can legitimately claim to be indigenous to those regions would be the people that were first there who created a permanent significant settlement and then it would be limited to what they actually were, in, were using, what they actually settled and or could settle, what they claimed in a civic sense. Many of these groups simply didn't even have the concept of ownership in that capacity. Um, if you don't have the capacity to say, well, this is mine, uh, how do you claim to, to have some sort of ownership to that land? It's funny because the concept, like, indigenous people, uh, in, in many cases, in its modern post-colonial sense at least, uh, comes from people that are like, well, we're all children of the same sun, children of the same earth, and share and share alike, property is bad. Okay, well then, uh, who owns the land? Oh, the indigenous people do. Oh, so they own it. So I suppose you're pro-ownership. It's very interesting how that works, <laughs> but it's only it's one directional. That's about all.
1: We just booked this guy, he's drunk. Disorderly conduct. I think that is uh, total exaggeration, don't you? What'd bring him up here for? This isn't a drunk tank. He's a government official, name's Heiss. Name's not Heiss, name's Heist. <laughs> not Heiss. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Uh, heiss? That's better. Is it true you're with the uh, federal government? I'm with the federal government. Did you know that? What is your connection with the government? I happen to be the chief of the Bureau of Federal Regional Development and Planning for Underdeveloped Suburban Areas, Mines, Parks, and Indians. That was my payoff in the last election. How do you like that? They say he delivered... 49 states? Well, donkey dust. (laughs) Six of those states were mine. As soon as the election was over, he called me into his office, you know. (laughs) And he said, uh, Ed, uh, that was a bang up job you did in the last election. And uh, to show my appreciation, I'm gonna make you the chief of the bureau of federal-regional development and planning for underdeveloped suburban areas, mines, parks, and India.
2: <laughs> the minute I heard Ron Valant mention how the government wants to make these native lands into parks, etc., I couldn't help but be reminded of that scene we just heard from the Barney Miller show. And I think that short scene said more about the corruption within governments and bureaucracies who concern themselves with so-called minority groups, whatever they are, than all of the mainstream media and commentaries combined could possibly say. So what can be said about the whole indigenous issue? Personally, I have absolutely nothing new to add to what I've been saying about native peoples and reservations for decades now. End the reservation system and privatize all the land on the reservations and allow those who legitimately have claim to the land to actually own it. In fact, I confronted this very issue back on February 26, 1995, almost three decades ago, when I personally addressed the then Reform Party of Canada's Aboriginal Affairs Task Force as an invited representative of the Provincial Freedom Party of Ontario and talk about defining the issue. My presentation was called Drawing the Line Property Rights and the Aboriginal Question. And this is what I said at that time, and I still say it today. And I quote, The moment we use the terms aboriginal, Indian, or native, and now I guess we can add indigenous to the list, in the context of discussing special government policy with respect to people identified as such, we are already practicing racism. Fundamentally, we must all learn to recognize that in a truly free society where every individual is equal before and under the law, there are no such things as aboriginal rights, just as there are no such things as French rights, English rights, black rights, white rights, women's rights, men's rights, labor rights, business rights, or a never-ending host of self-proclaimed collective rights whose causes our various federal and provincial governments have championed from time to time. There are only individual rights, which in a free society accrue to all individuals, regardless of race, sex, color, creed, interests, or affiliations. Legitimate rights do not accrue as a consequence of one's racial or cultural background or history, nor should any form of government be based on such grounds. If we believe that for a minute, then we are racists of the lowest order. Fundamentally, then, the proper principle on which to base any land claim settlements, rights, and government is the principle of individual rights under which all individuals are guaranteed their fundamental rights to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, and the necessary private property rights to enable the exercise of such freedoms. Unfortunately, we are far from the idealization of this principle and we cannot move forward until certain important issues are resolved, not the least of which are outstanding aboriginal land claims with the federal government. It is my understanding that as of 1992, and remember this is back in 92, there were still 310 outstanding specific land claims covering 53% of the surface of Canada, including downtown Vancouver, which is part of one claim. Sound familiar? Many Aboriginal leaders fear the privatization of reserve land. As Aboriginal writer Roger Abonsawin put it in the May 4, 1993 Globe and Mail article, The privatization of reserve land strikes at the very root of the aboriginal understanding of our relationship to the land and of the agreements in the royal proclamation and subsequent treaties. Other proposed laws involving governance, taxation, and exploitation of our natural resources will also be contentious since they will let Ottawa absolve itself of its fiduciary responsibility to our people. This argument... I believe, is a disservice to aboriginal peoples. It begins on a racist premise that by virtue of their race, all aboriginals share the same understanding of their relationship to the land, and continues with a plea for the continuous subsidization of aboriginal groups by the rest of Canadian society. In an age where our governments at every level are on the verge of bankruptcy, the continued subsidization of aboriginal groups is both irresponsible And destructive. Instead of privatization, Obonsawin advocates an honest and open social contract with Canada. This might sound viable to some on the surface, but it would be much less concrete a solution than privatization. Instead of ownership, which would empower all with the ability for self determination, he advocates yet another agreement, quote unquote, in effect, a contract with a government whose laws he neither trusts nor respects. Yet, privatization is exactly what would solve all of the legitimate concerns of aboriginal peoples, and of Canadians everywhere. For example, in a full-page newspaper ad published by the Assembly of First Nations, it is asserted that Canada's 1876 Indian Act quote, discriminates against Indians, end quote, and in its example cited, I couldn't agree more. And I quote from that ad. The Indian Act denies us the opportunity to make our own decisions, develop our lands and economic potential, educate our children, and plan our future. It's no surprise that this near-total government intervention into every aspect of life has undermined confidence, initiative, and self-respect. The many regulations and guidelines have slowed down desperately needed improvements in housing, health, education, and employment in First Nations communities, end quote. Wow. Now, where have we heard that before? From every Canadian, of every conceivable background from coast to coast, we are all over-governed and over-regulated. And it's for that reason that I can well understand and identify with aboriginal apprehensions regarding privatization. I mean, after all, Canadians from coast to coast cannot count on their governments to protect their property rights, since such rights are not guaranteed in Canada's constitution. Small wonder that the specter of privatization is not seen as the solution by many. Canadian governments tax private property and there are no laws limiting such taxation. Canadian governments control property use well beyond the reasonable limits which should exist to protect neighboring properties and people who might be affected by certain actions. Instead of fighting against each other and trying to negotiate agreements and contracts and settlements through a very politically unstable and fiscally bankrupt government, All Canadians should be working together to get their governments to entrench and make as their prime function the protection of property rights, real property rights. Many aboriginal groups have stated that they view themselves as caretakers of the land rather than as owners. But in a free, non-socialist society, ownership is the very thing that would give them the right to be caretakers of their lands. Governments change with each election. Past agreements can be made null and void with the stroke of a legislative pen. But this is not so in a country with entrenched property rights. Aboriginals deserve better than apartheid. They deserve the full rights, responsibilities, and privileges of Canadians as citizens, not by meeting a racial test. And that's what I told the task force back in February 1995. You can really tell they took my advice, right? (laughs) That was 27 years ago. And our governments have continued in the wrong direction, leftward towards more collectivism ever since. Instead of offering citizens the full accord of personhood within a framework of nationhood, our governments are leaving all their citizens completely vulnerable to globalism and fascism. The sovereignty of nations is globally under attack. Ironically, by a group called the United Nations. What I want to know is, what will the United Nations unite when there aren't any? Nations, that is. There's something to ponder, at least until you join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white.
1: Everything will be all right. You're holding a government official by the name of E.J. Heiss? Mr. Heiss. Oh, how do you do, Mr. Heiss? I'm an attorney with French, Edgeworth, Blair, Jackson, and Challenger. How do you do, Mr. French? Uh, the name is Bowley. Bowie? Wayne. wait. <laughs> now, Captain, I have a writ here for the immediate release of Mr. E.J. Heiss. And may I say, Captain Miller, that I am amazed that this kind of treatment could have been accorded a member of the United States State Department. Mr. Heiss isn't with the State Department. I beg your pardon? I'm a, I, I'm a bureau chief. The Bureau of Federal Regional Development and Planning for Underdeveloped Suburban Areas, Parks, Mines, and in India. <laughs>